Hi, I'm K.S. Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Nerdbird Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with the author of the sci-fi series Ancient Illumination and the newly released fantasy series Yumbani Chronicles, Rod Van Blake. Welcome, Rod. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. But uh, outside of my introduction, who is Rod Van Blake and what are you about? I am a guy who was born in New York, raised in Chicago, uh, played basketball shortly for a small school in Minnesota, joined the Marine Corps, and then later on in life decided he wanted to start writing books. Uh, During my trip to Japan and my first duty station in Okinawa, I started reading the Star Wars novels and the advent of episode one coming out uh, back in the day in like 99, 98, 99, 2000, around that era. because I'd always heard the books were better than the films and I didn't know much about these new characters that were coming out. So I started reading the books and eventually got sucked into the now defunct expanded universe for Star Wars because it's no longer uh, official now. That's all not canon. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day I decided, well, I've read so much of this stuff. I wonder if I could actually write something. And I'd also been reading a bunch of uh, fantasy novels as well, Lord of the Rings, uh, the Terry Brooks series, uh, Sword of Shannara, mm-hmm. R.A. Salvatore with the uh, Dark Elf trilogy, and some of the other Icewind Dale tales. Um, so I was curious to see if I could write something in that vein. I, I wrote a short story, but it was in a Star Wars theme. Basically, it was fan fiction. And I was like, that's cool, but I can never do anything with this since I don't own it. So yeah. I would probably be better off just starting off on my own and writing my own universe and world. And I, I basically create a fictitious universe that is the galaxy that we live in, where ancient beings of light come down to Earth during the days of Cro-Magnon and spawn a whole bunch of different mutant races and a cavalcade of things that just happen where technology and mutation just kind of escalate. And he, this one being that's left here exiled on Earth is watching the chaos he's created and us conflicting over our differences, which have become more extreme than simple skin color. Okay, and which which one is that? Is that the ancient illumination? That is okay, the ancient so illumination. Go, okay, yeah, so we'll that, go ahead and that's a great segue into what is uh, ancient illumination about? And then I guess you can talk about what is the uh, Yumbani Chronicles about? Uh, ancient illumination starts off, I, I, like I said, I was reading a whole bunch of stuff and I came up with like a what if scenario in my head. Like what if there were organic beings made of pure light and then how that reaction would be once they come to earth and we're still in the caveman stages of progression. Um, so that would be like 68,000 years ago. These beings come here to teach mankind in that stage that they're in. One sort of decides we're too dumb. Uh, so he starts experimenting on us. And that gets him in trouble with his own being. So as punishment, they take away his ability to change into pure light and leave and exile him here on earth. And now him solely tasked to teach mankind. So he kind of builds up a bunch of different, what would be considered advanced societies. Atlantis is started by him. He becomes the first Pharaoh um, in this fictional telling of our history. And when he leaves, the title stays, but that's why they're thought of as God Kings, because this original being of light actually had powers beyond that of regular men. Um, And then, of course, we get the GMC, which is the Galactic Marine Corps, because I'm a former Marine, so I put the Marines in my my book. So it becomes a 
a back and forth between mutations that come about and then regular people trying to use technology as their leverage to control these mutated beings. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of goes back and forth. And this, this original exile kind of just washes it off in the shadows. It becomes his entertainment since he's stuck here. Um, that's, that's basically what it's about. So it's space opera, first contact, military sci-fi action stories that are now, um, there are three novels in the series and we have two graphic novels as well that have begun illustrating those stories out in uh, full color. So, and we're eventually we're gonna do the same thing with the Umbani uh, Chronicles as well. Okay, yeah, when, you, when you're explaining Ancient Illumination, it almost kind of sounds like a, a what-if scenario for, oh God, what was his name? Um, I think Prometheus. Prometheus was the one that introduced fire, right? To the <clears throat> human beings. Was that him or was it somebody else? Yes, that was Prometheus had okay. stole, in, in the Greek, Laura Prometheus, I think he had stolen fire from the gods and then brought it down uh, to earth. And that's how it came here. Yeah, it kind of almost sounds <clears throat> like that. But like, in like, what if he wasn't his, what if he wasn't punished? What if, you know, he was left down here on earth and then he just kind of expanded on introducing other things to the human beings instead of being punished by a series? That's what the first, my first reaction to that. Um, but, um, the Yumbani Chronicles. Yumbani Chronicles is a fantasy tale that is basically an alternate dimension to ancient illumination. So it's not in the same universe, but an alternate dimension. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's just kind of a genre swap for me. I like science fiction, but I also like uh, sword and sorcery tales with dragons and that the like, but we usually get the same tales featuring the same people, the same gods. And I wanted to uh, focus more on the Orishas. That's, that's the pantheon mm -hmm. of gods that, that hovers over Yombani. And most of the characters, there are people of color. So it's kind of a switch to what we've been given. Yeah. There are other characters there, but we're now the focal point. We're no longer the side characters. We're everybody, we're the heroes, we're the villains. Uh, we have a group of mages, magic users that we're in war with these orc-like characters <clears throat> that are all about fighting. And they have a god that I made up named Surat, um, the blood god. And they, they basically sacrifice to this god. So fighting, shedding blood, and having their blood shed is kind of an homage in their eyes to their god. And we have these three elder dragons who have found a way to sustain their lives through these crystal magic conduits. And they're allowed, they, they, that allows them to kind of hibernate and sustain themselves without having to go out and hunt for food. And then by the magic, not only sustains them, but progresses them into a whole, uh, they become a different status uh, as they're hibernating. But there's something that corrupts that magic, forcing them to awaken. And they basically come out of their layers to figure out what the heck is going on, of course they blame mankind because a lot of times when the world goes wrong, it's because we've been messing with stuff that we shouldn't <laughs> be messing with yeah, or, or trying to control things that we shouldn't be trying to control and just let nature take its course. So that's who they blame. So now they're running around for answers, why they've been uh, awakened, why the magic is corrupted. There's a sickness going throughout the land. So they're all trying to come together to figure out what happened. And the catalyst for that is another a fallen mages who they thought was dead lost his love and has made a pact with one of the gods uh, 
thinking that he can bring his lost love back to life, but it's bringing corruption to the world. So he's kind of, he wasn't a purposeful thing that he wanted to end up being the villain, but he's just trying to do what he believes is right. He's trying to bring his love back. He doesn't know that all these other things are going to happen and it comes to a point where he's like, well, if that's what has to happen to bring my love back, then I'm going to do whatever is necessary to make that happen. Yeah, he's kind of messing with the, I guess, the natural order of things by <clears throat> trying to resurrect her. Yeah, I, yeah. I get that. But uh, you mentioned that the the genre swap from fans, from sci-fi to fantasy. So how was that from going one genre to the other? Was it that big of a difference? Was it, it, it wasn't that big of like how was how big of the difference was it if there even was one it's not that big of a difference it's usually and some uh stories out there are an amalgam of both i think of star wars as, as an amalgam of both you do have technology spaceships and aliens but you also have the forest which i know recently they tried to take the fantasy magical aspect out of it by making it a scientific explanation for what they with the midichlorians and all that but that's, it's not that hard. To me, with magic and, and fantasy, you just have to figure out how your magic works in your world and what the rules are. And then once you figure out those two things, the characters operating within this world have to operate by those rules, or else I think you're going to lose your readers once they figure out you cheat to get your main uh, character, your protagonist, out of it by, by cheating the rules somehow. Uh -huh. And it does happen if it's done correctly. And if it's done cool, I don't. Then some people won't be mad, but a lot of people will be be pissed if you you have a genie. You're only supposed to get three wishes, and you're about to die. He's already used his three wishes, and then you give him a fourth wish now to bring him out of the situation. And the reader's like, "Well, I don't believe anything you said because you just threw out the cardinal rule." And with science fiction, it's usually um, technology has to be somewhat based in in science and its foundation of why and how the technology has been developed and works in that world. <clears throat> so it wasn't hard it wasn't hard for me to make the switch and I've read enough of both that I, I figured I could do well in either um, I like a lot of the action in both actually I like a lot of the action and fight scenes uh, a lot of the fantasy stuff will have more close quarters combat whereas sometimes a lot of the sci-fi will have more uh, fights that are at range because they're using like either energy or ballistic projectile weapons for the most part until either ammunition or energy runs out and you have to come close, then you get some of the hand-to-hand -hand stuff. But a lot of it in fantasy is swords, um, mm -hmm. sword fighting and, and you know, at, at most like arrows or something like that. And then you have the ranged weapons, I guess would be uh, spellcasters and whatnot. But it wasn't hard. I enjoyed them both. And I've read both enough that I thought I could get a good grasp on either. I wasn't going to be lost. And it'll be interesting because I do have a couple characters that have some crossover between both dimensions. Uh, oh, wow. One of which uh, is, is yet to be released. We're keeping it under wraps, but the uh, Jordan Pennell Jackson, he's the one that illustrated my graphic novels. Him and I together came up with a character that will kind of be our kind of magical and technological Batman who's like a detective uh -huh. between both worlds. So we're kind of trying to mix noir in there so that he can, um, in my fantasy world, in Yombani, what he's going to do is basically there are like unsolved mysteries of either murders, thefts or what, and he has a sense of when magic has been used. So when someone thinks that someone just been burned to death, he can come in and be like, no, that fire wasn't a natural fire and it burned way hotter, I can tell by the residue. And so that'll set him on the trail to find out who the culprit is. So that's kind of what we want to develop. Uh, one of the things with that character and he'll have an interesting backstory to come up with and all that. 
Oh yeah, that definitely sounds really cool. So can you elaborate on your creative process, I guess, from just an idea in your head to now you got to put it on paper to now you have to read it a bunch of times and make sure that, you know, you're following along your own rules and that the world building seems right and your characters are flushed out to the point where they need to be, even sending it to an editor, finding a cover artist all the way until now that they're a finished product and it can be for both of them it can be for pretty much any writing that you have but what is like your creative process like are you are you a linear writer or a non-linear writer something like that as well okay i can be both yeah i'm pretty much a linear writer in that i start out with like my what if scenario once i came up with the beings of pure light then i had to kind of go to the next step of creating the characters that live within this world who are the main principles that we're going to be following what groups of people will we be seeing? And once I establish the groups, then I, I focus in on the one or two characters that are going to be, that we're going to be seeing exactly. And then I come up with an outline for it. And that outline is pretty much what I follow uh, through the book. So once I come up with the scenario, I kind of build the world and then figure out who exactly is it we're focusing on. And then it's just a matter of listing from A to Z what's going to happen at the beginning and what's going to happen in the end. And then I go about filling in the blocks in between my outline. Now, when I get, some people have like writer's block, when I get stuck, then I may go in and just come up with what I think are cool scenarios. And then it's up to mm -hmm. me to figure out where in the blocks makes sense for that. Uh, like if I come up with a cool battle scene or a fight scene, where can I put that? Who's fighting in it? Where are they or located in this, these universes? And I use OneNote right now. I used to write everything down. It used to be a handwritten outline. And now I have a OneNote, which has like my persona dramatist, the, all the characters are listed, where they're from, mm -hmm. uh, what species they are, what they're, you know, what they look like, height, weight, you know, whatever, their special skills. Um, and I keep that. And then I have the outline that has the, the story beats of where each person is and what happens next. Um, and once I get through all that, that's what keeps me in check for trying not to have too many plot holes. I, I, nothing is going to be perfect, I believe, but if a character is dead on page 32, and I can't re-bring them in, obviously on page 89, somebody's like, wait a minute, this, this person isn't supposed to be here anymore. Uh -huh. I did have an issue with the third book in the AI uh, series where I was writing and I kept using a name and I, I remembered, I had it already remembered before even going to kind of check, but I was like, I don't think this person is around anymore. And then, so I went back through the second novel, read the whole thing entirely and found out, you know what? You're right, this is where that person. So then I had to go, cause I was using Microsoft Word. I just basically went through the third manuscript and did a word search. And every time this one character is mentioned, I switched it to a different name. Then I had to go back and find where the origins of that character was in this uh, third novel and change, tweaked it a bit so that it, it made sense. This was a new character that was, and it's not this reprise of this other character. You have to be on the lookout for those. And hopefully um, the editor, depending on what kind of editor you have, will be on the lookout for that if they're looking for things of continuity. Uh, most of my editing now, uh, I have people do for basically grammar and flow. So uh -huh. 
they may not necessarily be paying attention to the story, but if they're looking for the big ones like misspellings, um, if, a, if a sentence is kind of too wordy and it makes it kind of something that you would stumble upon trying to read and then you can't get past it, it can be distracting. Uh, homonyms, we have words that are technically spelled correctly and sound the exact same, but in context, they're incorrect. Things of that nature is what I'm hoping they can help me with. Um, I, I pretty much keep keep an eye on the the story factors and what you know what's going on in each one. Um, that that's pretty much my process to come up with the premise, and once I come up with that the the basic premise, then I flesh out the groups of people who are living in these worlds. Then after I fleshed out each group, then I'll pick a main person from each one that'll be the main focal point when we go into the minutia of the story of this one character who lives among the Kisan Ascari, the stone warriors in the ancient illumination. We focus either on Jared Omega in the first book or his son next, uh, Darius, and his wife, Tunisia. We'll focus mainly on them and travel, see what they have to go through as they're traveling through. Uh, the Lemuel Johari, the walking jewels, they're beings that have like a crystallized skin. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically kind of uh, almost like a sugar base is what happens. And that's how it's crystal. It's not an actual crystal they're not really made of diamonds but they have that appearance because of the crystallization of this their the sugars in their in their bodies that kind of manifest externally to give them that look and their hair kind of looks like uh, amethyst uh, crystals hanging oh, cool. um, whereas the kisan ascari they have an over calcification of the skin so that makes them they're not actually made of stone stone warrior in swahili is what kisan ascari means but that lets them go on other planets uh, mine on places with heavier gravities, crazier weather conditions, just overall in general, what regular men couldn't stand on the natural, they can go in and work and that's their value. They've given these, these materials that makes a lot of these technologies available because they can get things that nobody else can get to. And so that's where conflict end up, ends up coming down the line. We're like, yo, we're not being compensated for what we're bringing up to the table and we we need to get that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I, I do things. And I do stick to that outline with the exception of, I like characters to kind of grow and evolve as things go along. So mm -hmm. perhaps if they had a goal in the beginning of the book that they really wanted to do this one thing, and then something happens that may flip a switch, change them, either someone dies or they lose something that kind of changes their perspective and outlook on life, now their goals change and they may veer another way. Uh, and that could be either expected or unexpected, depending on the reader, I guess. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I'm sitting there, I'm listening to you and it's just like, you have such profound knowledge of your world. And I would hope you would. And with me, with, with my writing is that, um, as you just mentioned that your characters, you know, they might have had a certain goal in the beginning, but then it changes depending on the scene or the circumstances. Whereas with me is, I have a scenario in my mind and I'll write that out and then make the story, like write the story from then on, from then on out. And I'll have the ending in mind, but I don't really know how I'm going to get there. I kind of let my characters tell me where they want me to go, where they want me to take them. And um, I like to people watch in sightsee. I'm here in, in, in Baltimore and um. I'm like, okay, so I have an idea of a certain scene in my head. Okay, where is it going to take place? 
well, I take the subway or the light rail and I see places all the time, or we'll put it there, even if I don't, even if I have no idea what kind of building it is. I kind of like the exterior of it. And then we'll just kind of kind of go from there. So I, I love hearing, you know, authors, writers, creators, where they may be having this profound knowledge of their world, having an outline and explaining characters, height, weight, skin color, and the effects of their skin, wherever it may be. And then, you know, just having all of the information and then plugging it in. Whereas with me, I was like, people ask me, so where's it going? What are you doing? I was like, I, I don't know. They, yeah. They're, they're going to tell me what to do. I, I have no idea. And then we'll just go from there. So that's why I asked if you write linear or nonlinear. And when you said linear, I was like, oh, how does that work? Because my brain is all over the place. How are you able to just do that? It, that's just a bit. Ba- I keep the I keep the outline as a baseline. That that's you know these are, these are the points where I need to get to, and now how how I get to is is kind of a mystery. Uh-huh. I know where A is. I know where Z is. Now there's a whole lot of ways we can get from A to Z, and I know that this is where I'm going to go. But things may change in the interim, and the resolution at the end may come out slightly different. We get to that place, but like I said, the characters hopefully have evolved where they don't necessarily feel the same once we've got to Z that they did in A. And so that may change what happens in the next book. Because right now I'm at three books in one series, one in the other. Mm -hmm. I'm about to start the second one pretty soon in Yombani. And usually at the end of the book, um, there are certain characters that special things happen to, and he's he or she is set up to do this one thing. This character is within this archetype. They're supposed to do this. We get to the end and that character may say, that's, that's not what I want. I don't, I don't want to ascend to any throne. I don't want to be a monarch over any group of people. I feel I should be doing this. And that can cause tension and conflict but within the families. They go their own way. And then that's a whole nother storyline and rift that can be explored in other stories um the comic thing has been really cool because after going i started my first comic con in 2017 in baltimore that was my first one and i only had one book uh wife and i she's my girlfriend at the time wife now but had no idea whether we would be able to sell any books at a comic book convention we were offering nothing visible i got 290 pages of words for y'all at this point but I had some good artwork done for me. I had some uh, posters. I had went to Kinko's or something to put them up on these like foam placards and they could stand up so you could see some of the characters. And that was a cool uh, tool of mine because people would see the books, they would see my banners behind me and then they would see this character art and then that would make them call, hey, uh, well, who's this character? So then that would give me a chance to engage with people and talk to them and say, oh, this is Malice. He's the main henchman of the Pharaoh character. And he's basically his hands and eyes. He doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to be, he just wants to be in the background. So when he needs somebody to be touched, uh, he's just going to go out and send Malice out to do his bidding so that um, he doesn't have to necessarily be involved. No one sees him. He's, for all intents and purposes, he's just a myth. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't really exist in in the main story of everybody what they see so and this is babylon babylon's got long white dreadlocks amber eyes and blue skin he's one of the original atlanteans so those explanations that i was giving to people and they got interested and they heard about characters and people that they liked and they're like all these 
people are in this book. And I'm like, yeah, they are. I said, all right, well, how much is the book? And I was like, great, <laughs> here it is. I'd give them the book. But there was a significant amount of people over the years that have come up to me and been like, story sounds really cool. I like the visuals that you have given us here. I just wish you had given us more of the visuals. This is a comic book convention. Is there any way you would think about maybe illustrating it out for us so that we could, you know, so I could see these instead of having to read them because that's the way I like my medium. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that sounds like an awesome idea. The only problem with that is I, I can't draw. I can't draw stick figures. We, we're going to have a problem if I have to do that. Um, but eventually uh, I ended up meeting Jordan. Uh, the wife found him at a small convention in Howard County, like a Howard County state fairground somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we, we met at that place. And then um, I looked, she's like, you need to go look at his art. It looks really cool. I think you guys would be a good match, young brother. I was like, okay. So I go down, I see his art. I like it. Uh, he came over to my table and said he, he liked the story and he got book one from me at the table right then and there. I was like, cool. I said, you know what? As soon as I make table, I'm coming down. And I told him which three or four prints that I wanted. And I told him I would get them. And then that happened. We met up like a week later, uh, spoke about it, um, wrote up a contract, set up, decided on price per page and moved from there and uh, was able to get the first few chapters of this book, which is uh, Ancient Illumination, the first novel, and then turn that into the first graphic novel that came out. Cool. And we just recently uh, finished volume two. This is the first volume. Um, so that, that's been doing well since things have opened back up. Um, I think 2019, I had, uh, 2018, I had finished the second novel. I had written that. 2020, we had published that graphic novel in book three, and then everything shut down. Yeah. So I had a bunch of new content for everybody with nobody to give it to because all the in-person events were down. So then that's when I hunkered down and was like, you know what? I might want to start on this fantasy series and see if I can get that done. I think I, this is the fastest I've ever written a book. I think I got that done in like four months. Oh, wow. And it's I actually the I longest book. Couldn't imagine. <laughs> and it's actually longer than any of my other books. Not by much, but it is the longest thing that I've written. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. So how has the process been with translating, I guess, some of the chapters from the first book, from the first novel into the into the graphic novel, how has that been? How how involved were you in it? You know, did you have to take a little bit of a step back to let the uh, illustrator do his job, or were you able to have like a nice cohesive relationship with him while he was doing the the graphic novel? All the above. Jordan has been awesome. Um, I did not script this out. This which is point was now I'm reading a book on scripting for comics because we're going to start doing the side comics, so the, the side stories for characters that people may find interesting that don't get as much shine in the novels. Mm -hmm. We're gonna give all those groups their very own story for both series. So those I'm going to script. For these, Jordan actually uh, scripted it out for me. He, I write cinematically. And he's like, that's good for movies, good for books, not so good for a visuals only medium because Usually in my chapters, you have a few paragraphs or a couple pages 
and you're with one group and then bam now we're off to mars which another with another group of characters for the next three to four pages while they're setting up their storyline bam back to earth where the headquarters of the gmc is having an argument over what to do about some revolution that started in the congo so you can do that in books and movies because you can give people you know primers for where they're going and the visual tell he's like you have a limited amount of pages in a graphic even though it's 56 pages or even a standard 22 to 24 page comic there's a limited amount of pages you can't go hopping around so much mm -hmm. and give them a cohesive story in this medium he's just what i'm gonna have to do he actually stitched together so that we stay longer with one group for say the next 10 to 20 pages then you there's a uh he's got this cool like I don't even know what to call them. They're like break pages, let you know you're going on to the next section. And that's mm -hmm. what primes you that you're going to be introduced to another. But it's after, like I said, like 20 something pages. It's not hopping around as much as I do in the novels. So that was a change that I had to make going from one medium. And I had to, I just took his advice. I didn't really argue with him about it when he told me. I was like, mm, I thought about it. That makes sense. And we've had really good luck. We actually spoke about this. Um, I, I said, I've been trying to get into BlurredCon for years and finally got into it this year, only because I had a panel that I spoke on titled When the Writer Meets Artist. And it was basically the genesis of our working relationships, our two talents, the having the business side of things and the other aspects like the potential clash of personalities, uh, this being my baby and then letting someone else come in and be a part of the creative process with that and the difficulties that arise and you kind of have to if you're going to work with people you kind of have to let them have some ownership over it or otherwise I don't think it's it's not going to mean as much to them like mm. if I was staunch but like no you're going to you're going to illustrate it out this way because it's mine and what I say goes then yeah artists are going to take money and do that but it kind of undercuts some of the value they might be able to provide to you in this instance, had I done that, I would have been uh, done him and myself a disservice, but I don't think it would have turned out as well had I been stubborn about certain things. Um, but I wanted him to be a part of the creative process. I wanted him to feel like it was, after, I mean, it has his name on it too, so. Mm. All right. Um, well, what advice would you offer to other writers? You wish someone would have told you when you first started. So it can be in your, your novels, it can be, um, wanting to venture off into uh, graphic novels. It can be just even trying to work cons for in-person sales versus the digital sales. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you offer to other authors, writers, you wish someone would have told you when you first started? May, uh, get the work done. That's the first and, and probably for most people, the largest hurdle. Um, I think a lot of people have stories out there. A lot of people say, I'm gonna write a book and they start and you'd be surprised to see how many people just don't finish. Mm -hmm. um, there is no perfect time. Life will always get in the way of the things that you're trying to do. That's the first hurdle is getting it done. You can perfect it later. Some people are sticklers for everything being perfect. It's not going to be perfect the first time. And if it is perfect, where do you go from there? Where, how can you evolve? How can you progress if you're already at the pinnacle when you start? And I don't think anybody's at the pinnacle when they start. Um, that would be one thing get it done. And as far as cons go, I'm, I'm not sure it's for everybody, but I think everybody should try it. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think people that are outspoken do better. People that are engaging with people that are walking by your table do well. People that put their noses in their books and their heads down and ignore everybody that walks past are not going to do very well at any person con. It's just, this is not a build it and they will come type of thing. You just write the book, sit down, everybody's just going to rush to your table because there are thousands of other vendors who are going to be engaging, who are going to be talking and chatting people up, who are going to be luring potential readers over to their tables. Uh, I think it's a bit harder for authors in that it's not, like I said, it's not a visual medium. So I have to get you to crack that book first mm -hmm. <laughs> to get what I'm, what I'm selling. Whereas people who are visual artists, like I look up and I see this poster of this African deity looking mighty and auspicious amongst the clouds. And if I like it, it's really intricate. I like the detail, I like the style of that artist. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to get it without the artist saying one word to me. The only conversation we're really going to have is, man, that's dope. How much is it? Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, people come by the table and they're like, ancient illumination. What's it about? And then that's, you have to get that part down of getting your spiel together. I've also had cards made up that has the synopsis on the back of it when I have a bunch of people at the table. Sometimes the wife will just hand out a bunch of books as they read the synopsis. They're, we, we, we've learned as we've done this over the years and gotten progressively better and better. And then I've come back with more and more content. That's the other thing. You can't stop at one book. If you're trying to make it something that you're gonna do as a viable source of income. If you're doing it as a hobby, then hey, just write what you like and don't worry about it too much, but still get the get the work down. But if you're trying to make money at it, you can't have one thing because how many times can someone buy that one book? How many times can the reader support you if all you have is one book? And I have a lot of people that have come up to me at conventions and they ask. When I first had the first book, they were like, Well, is this is this it or is this going to be an ongoing series is going to be a trilogy. What? And I think a lot of times the reason that they're asking is some of these people want a long series of books. Some people don't want a long series of books. They're like, I'm good if it's like three or four, but if you get into approaching double digits, they may not be there for it, especially if the storyline fizzles out. But some people want to know that if I get invested in the storyline, that there'll be more of me to enjoy later if I really like this. Or will I be frustrated that I've enjoyed these first couple books and now you've quit. Um, mm -hmm. So I urge people not to quit. It can be done. That's the one thing a lot of people say, I can't, I can't write a book. And I'm like, yes, you can. Everybody can write a book. It's just that only two or 3% of us actually sit down and do it. But everybody has a story within them. At least I believe that we all have a story within us. Yeah, I believe that as well. I have a lot of people in my life who, you know, they admire the fact that I finished two and I'm on to my third. And they ask me for advice all the time. And I'm more than happy to give it to them. But my number one thing is just to, just to start. A lot of them haven't started yet, you know? Yeah. So they take notes down, they have an idea in their head and they run it past me. And I try to tell them, you know, what advice I could give them and my experience and some of the same things you said already. But a lot of them haven't started yet. So it's yeah. like you need to start. And when you start and you get going, that will tell you where you will want to go. Because once you actually write it down, you sit down and you write it down or you type it, mm -hmm. that does something to you. That can change everything once you actually start. That actually makes it real now. It's not just an idea in your head where you can just 
swap things out and change different ideas and change this person's hair color or this person's eye color or you change the city or whatever it may be when you actually sit down and write it that's when things really become a reality yeah yeah and also sometimes if you're having trouble finishing you have to make the time there is no some people i can't find the time they're the same 24 hours in a day for me as it is for anybody else and once we were locked down, I was determined to come down. I treated it like a day job since I wasn't going to be going nowhere. So I'd get up, I'd make a breakfast sandwich. I'd come down here, do my little workout. I'd sit down at my desk. I'd pull up my one note with my outline and my other notes for characters and say, all right, where are we at? And let's go. We're on chapter one. Bam, here's the outline for the prologue. And I started writing that out. If I got to a point where I was stuck, then I would, like I said, I would explore and kind of visualize the people and the beings that are inhabiting. So I had the Elenanye, uh, which is short for another long Kosa name, meaning of elven descent in uh, Kosa. It's a long, there's a longer name than that. And I had, like I said, I had the regular uh, people part. One of the groups uh, was the Pantu tribesmen. Uh, these are people that patrol the grasslands of these bovine-like creatures in the fantasy world, and they ride on dire panthers, mainly because the panthers are carnivorous, and if they didn't try and control the panthers, then they would be vying for them <laughs> as prey because the bedrahina, these bovine creatures, are what they eat. But if they raise the panthers and feed them, then they're no longer competing. They're able to take care of each other. It becomes kind of like a symbiotic relationship between them and these grasslands. And amongst the grasslands, they try to protect the grasslands because that's what attracts these bovine creatures. Um, and also it, be it became like a, a, a matter of trade, you know, kind of like the buffalo. Um, you, you take these creatures apart, they're good for meat, they're good for fur, they're good for sinew, they can craft things. And so it becomes a point of commerce for them to use as leverage with the groups of people around them. Uh, so it, it, it's, when I get stuck, on where I'm at in this block of the story, then I go and think of things like that. Okay, let's flesh out uh, the Cometan city. Let's flesh out these people and where they live and how they live. And then by the time I've gone through that process a few times, maybe inspiration hits me back and I'm able to jump right back into the story and continue on. But I'm always working, when I'm in writing, I'm always working on something. So writer's block really isn't a block because I'm still expanding the universe, even if I'm not finishing that chapter that I was currently working on. So that's always keep moving. That's my other advice. I, I would say always keep moving, uh, be it laterally or, you know, horizontally or vertically. You should be doing something to further and expand your universes, even if you can't do it on the specific writing that you're working on right there. You should be expanding something. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. With me, I'll... <laughs> With, with me, if I have writer's block, I just step away from it and then it'll come back to me randomly. Like I'm walking my dog, I'm taking a shower, I'm cooking food or something like that. It'll come back to me and like, oh, you know what? We could do this, we could do that. And that's when I start expanding on with my ideas. So, yeah. but um, my last question for you, Rod, is what is your idea of success? I ask that because as creators, if we're not getting regular paychecks from a full-time job or making consistent revenue from our art, we're considered failures. Many of us will put our dreams and projects on the back burner or give them up altogether because this career can be highly intimidating and competitive. 
So what is your idea of success? Quote, unquote, my, success. My idea for success is when one or both of these series get picked up for either a streaming service or a film deal. Um, and my other, my other idea for success is, is just garnering a bunch of readers that enjoy what I've created. I call that finding your tribe. Whatever it is that's weird that you like, when you find those people that relate to the stories that you're creating, then you, to me, that is success. When people are online arguing about either the magic or the technology that is within my books, that I will deem a success. When they're having polls online, you know, how do the gravity staves work that the Kisan Ascari have made? And they're arguing over the minutia of that, you know, based on things that they've read and heard or their own theories like that. That's when you're successful. When it's blown up to the point where people are just discussing what's what's really real in Yambania or ancient illumination. I want people to relate to these stories, people to enjoy these stories and perhaps spark inspiration for other people to either write their own or maybe when other people start writing fan fiction for my stuff, that could be success. There's not like a there's not like a monetary number that I'm looking for that says, hey, you've made it. Um but there are goals that I have that I'm seeking. Um, I admire what Lucas did. I'm attempting to do what he did, but on my own. He only novelized one book. There's over 200 something novels in the Star Wars universe when he owned it before passing on to Disney. And I was like, what if I could build something that big that people, like this grew into film, video games, uh, TV shows, animations, all the things that have come from this one idea. That's kind of what I want to emulate. The difference is I'm penning a lot of it, if not all of it myself. I'm not looking for 200 other authors. I may invite other authors to write certain stories within my universes if you know I, I veer into things that I'm not comfortable writing. Um, maybe with uh, groups that I'm not actually a member of, and if I want to invite somebody that is an actual member of that, demographic that I feel like, hey, it would be really cool to have this story within my universe, but I'd like you to write it because you are more representative of what this character is, you know, and that's a weird arrangement, but that's some of the things that I've thought about doing as well. But yeah, that's that's my end game right there. I'm, I'm, wanting, to, I'm wanting to get a movie or TV deal at the end of it and, and just things to grow to where I'm not expanding it myself anymore, but I'm I'm not done writing by a long shot. I've got the bug now, so I'm going to keep on writing as much as I can. Well, if you if you wanted to be adapted into a TV show, movie, you know, pass it on like Lucas did with Disney, would you be okay? I guess at that point, you would probably be more than fine once you see that check of not being involved in it as much as you were before. Because like Lucas said, it's his, it has his name on it and everything. And this is his universe. This is his world that he built, you know, but he doesn't really have much of any involvement oh, in it like he did before. So yeah, would you be okay with that pretty much at that point in your life? It depends. It would have to be a crazy amount. And, and at that point, I would probably be working on something else already. So by then, I'm, I don't know how long my series will be at that point, if it gets to that point. Um, I am more in line of negotiating. I will take a little less money if I can retain some of that creative control to ensure that whatever gets produced is more faithful to my writing. 
that that would be my thing. I want to deal, but it's not just hey, I'm glad to have the money, and and just pass it on. At least not right now. And that my you know years down the line, I may be tired and that may change, uh, but right now I I I take less money and, and buy for uh, some creative control. At least be a consultant on the show and all that. You know, moving forward, yeah, it's not just sense. about getting that deal alone. <laughs> yeah, that that makes sense because um. I don't know if you're familiar with Rick Riordan. He's done the Percy Jackson, like uh, Greek mythology series for kids. Yeah. And he didn't have any involvement with the movies, but Disney is now looking to adapt the book series into a TV show on their Disney Plus. And he has mm -hmm. more involvement in it now than he did before. So maybe they work something out as far as like negotiating and money. He may have taken less money to have more involvement. So that may yeah. be something you would prefer to do. Yeah. I would actually like to take a side gig. If I could write for Marvel, Disney, or, or, or Star Wars, I would rather do that and get paid for that so that I could take that money uh -huh. and fuel it into producing my own productions. If I had yeah. that option, that would be that would be cool too. Maybe you can write stuff for them, like maybe sell them stories. Because I have a friend of mine who he sells stories to like Warner Brothers and they have, mm -hmm. the, I guess, their own faction. I don't know what part he sold it to but it was definitely under Warner Brothers and they just keep it I guess they just sit on it and then maybe they'll bring it Use back it. at some point and make yeah. it into a tv show or change it around but he he sold it to them that's what he does he'll sell them stories so hmm. maybe that's something you could possibly look into yeah so but uh is there anything else that you wanted to touch on about other series uh, ancient illumination or Yambani chronicles that I may have missed or uh, I know you have you talked about tour dates because I saw some tour dates on your uh, on your website. Yeah, I have a couple coming up. Uh, December 11th, I'll be in Ocean City, Maryland uh, for Ocean City Con. And then I have World Con at the end of the year, the 15th through the 19th of December in D.C. Um, World Con is where they give out the Hugo Awards, which is basically like the Grammy or Oscar for sci-fi and fantasy authors. It's okay. a four-day event, and it rotates cities. It's never in the. It's not in the same city each year. We've been to Chicago. It's been to San Jose, California. It was also in Helsinki, Finland, a few years oh, wow. back. Yeah, so it rotates, and uh, it's my first time going to that. And I think next year it's in Chicago, uh, so I'll probably be trying to find a way to get there as well. Um, and then I'm not. I'm done until February of 2022. I'll be at Farpoint and online virtuous con that's how i start off and i think virginia beach at tidewater comic con in may i think those uh -huh. are the first ones set up and then blurred con again and then we'll be coming back around to baltimore i think i have five or six set up for next year already i'll be looking to add some hopefully if nothing goes on uh with this variant to shut things down again but i have i have a few set up for next year already all right all the all the cons worth doing for you personally or like professionally or is it something like maybe you should just do local stick to local stuff like maybe pop-ups or something like that maybe local stuff is good i'm gonna look to do that more mainly because they're cost effective but as far as see when i first started out i didn't know i was thinking with my marketing increase oh i know i'm gonna do some little marketing research um and i came up with locust magazine locust is a sci-fi uh, fantasy magazine that specializes in literary works of, you know, within those genres, um, 70,000 uh, nationwide viewership, average uh, 12 to 60. And these people um, 
purchase around $1,000 in books annually. Uh, so it sounded like that was a good market to tap into. Uh, at the time, I could only afford a quarter page, and it was 300 a month. But you can only buy you can only buy them in three month increments. So I couldn't pay just one month for three hundred dollars. I had to pay for three months, which was nine hundred dollars. I was also in Isomov magazine. Um, I think it's Analog and Isomov, another sci-fi fantasy magazine, good for literary authors. Those two publications, I believe, are great if you're a name. If you're not Stephen King or George R. R. Martin, R. S. Salvatore, Kevin J. Anderson. Uh, Frank Herbert's son, I forget his, his name right now. Um, if you're not one of those authors, Terry Brooks, if you're not one of them in, within sci-fi and fantasy, I don't think um, that's a viable way of advertising that's going to give you a return on investment. So I took that 250 at the time in 2017 and bought my first table at Baltimore. At uh, the time, I think we came with around 80 books or 80-something books and left with 12 books in total. I had uh, most of those were paperbacks. I had like 10 or 11 hardcovers, but altogether, we came back with 12 books. I made almost $700, and I was like, you know what? This I might be able to do because the other thing was with me advertising online in uh, these magazines, I couldn't tell where my sales were coming from. There was nothing that correlated that someone found your book in this magazine and then got it. Mm -hmm. Or they may have just happened upon the book in Amazon or Barnes and Noble, saw it and picked it up. There was no correlation since I couldn't see that relationship between the advertisement I was spending my money in and that sale. It didn't match up. And even if I could, I knew from my royalty checks coming that it didn't correspond with the money I had spent. So I wasn't making that 250 back. I wasn't making that 300 a month back, but I could see that I paid 250 and got 700 in three days. So for me, it was a viable tool, a more viable tool than conventional advertising. I'll put it that way. So mm -hmm. I know it's not gonna work that way for everybody. Uh, I think my setup has a lot to, it, to do with it. I think me personally has a lot to do with it because I'm a large person. People often walk up to me at these tables. They see six, nine, 350 pound black dudes. Like you, you write books. I'm like, yes, I wrote, I wrote these books. And then that sparks a conversation. So it, it depends on the person, but for me, it worked out good. And for many other people, I think it'll work out better. Um, Cause some people just don't have a good grasp of online advertising either. You know, these Facebook ads, um, Twitter ads, uh, Instagram, all these other things, it's kind of, it can be kind of elusive to get a handle on what exactly works and what doesn't. And there are a lot of people out there that are trying to sell you this dream, like, hey, I can get you on this SEO campaign and we can get the Facebook ads going. And for a fee, I'm going to blow you up type of thing. Like mm -hmm. it's going to make all these sales. And I think people are kind of leery of that because of so many scams and stuff that are out there. So for me, starting out the, the conventions, I was just basically in 2017, I was dipping my toes into the water. And once I figured that that worked only, we I think we only did that one con the next year, we did two cons in 2018. And the next con next, next year, I think we did four this year. I think we're up to six or seven. And next year we're probably 
my idea was to get 12. And if I could get 12 events and try and make a grand at each event, then it's viable. Plus, like you said, the, the pop-up store, depending on the crowd that's there, um, they can be very, they can do very well, um, mm -hmm. depending on where it's located. BlurredCon was awesome. And I was flabbergasted that we did as well as we did at BlurredCon, mainly because I missed Friday pretty much. I was only there for the last hour. Did Saturday and Sunday. And I did better there than I had done at the past two previous awesome cons and, and uh, Baltimore Comic Cons, which are bigger oh, wow. events. So if you can find a smaller event, and that's the other thing, you have to kind of do your research and find what small events are in my area that are close, that are not going to cost a lot to get to. The table's going to be cheap, but has the potential for me to make a good amount of money selling books. That's if, if they're going to be supportive. If you go into an event, you know that they're not going to be supportive. You just kind of have to figure those things out. And we've, we've pretty much got a good cluster of four or five that I know that we can do well. And right now it's about adding other events in the open spots throughout the year to kind of keep that momentum going. Uh, the only reason we kind of made it through 2020 is I did a Kickstarter with my, my guy Jordan for the uh, graphic novels. So that kind of made up for me missing that year's worth of events. And mm -hmm. then we reopened this year and we out, we've outdone the Kickstarter in sales since we've been opened up and I still got two more events going. So it just depends. Um, if you're, like I said, if you, if you're passionate about what you're doing, even if you, you're saying that I have a grasp of the knowledge of the world and the characters that I've created, if your passion shows through, you will make sales. A lot of people will be happy to see someone who's enthusiastic about what they do. Because if you don't care about what you write, then how are you going to get me, convince me to care about what it is you're writing? I've had some guys stop me mid-pitch. I'm just going, 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 and buddy's like, hey, buddy, you good. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about, but I can tell you're excited. And from that alone, uh, give me these, give me the first two. And I'm like, you know, and at that point, I just shut up, all right. Here you go. Um, so yeah, I think cons in person, it you don't get that in-person relation online like you do for the most part. Virtuous con has been close. Um, I've been through on Virtuous Con. Uh Jordan had a table there. I'm trying to table next year in February. Um, that's the close because we've kind of how we're it's basically like a Zoom call, like a, mm -hmm. a large Zoom call, but you can see tables on this little map. And once you click on the map for that table, you can be sitting face to face with the artist or the author. Um, that's as close as you can get to without being in person. But that relational, uh, that relationship between potential reader and writers at conventions, I think can be invaluable to boosting your sales. You can get people excited about your story. You, you can meet the, the reader face to face, give them your book, you sign it for them, they're happy. And then if they enjoy it, um, you get to, they can you can get comebacks people come back uh, people when we went in 2018 had came to my table in baltimore at 2017 and we're looking for book two and i was happy and i was like really I'm like yeah we were here last year where's the next book and the same thing has happened um now i just did richmond november 20th and i had a guy who was dressed up as sub-zero he cosplays everywhere he shows up and he's like, yeah, uh, you got book three out, I see. He's like, I got book one and two, 
the last time I saw you in 2019. I'm going to need book three and whatever this new thing is. Give me that. So you don't really get that online unless they're, you know, you have to get them clicking on you. Click on me here on Facebook. Click on the, my Amazon author's page. Click on Barnes. Click on my author website. You know, they, it's, it's, it's invaluable in that those people are brought there. Whatever the foot traffic, of, that's the other thing you need to check, the foot traffic. Get the previous yeah. foot traffic of years prior to see how many people potentially do I get a chance to meet, knowing you're not going to meet all of them. But obviously, the more the, the larger that number is, the better chances you are going to get to to get some new readers, find some people that will enjoy your work. And like I said, you have to be kind of outspoken. You have to have to be active because there are so many people there. There's so many distractions, especially when you get to some of the larger cons and they have uh, celebrities, you know, and where placement is a big one. If you can control your placement at the cons, those are things to look out for because if you're right next to the celebrity line and someone just signed a, you know, he paid $200 for a signed picture of Hulk Hogan, he can't come and then pay, you know, that $2010 for your book, that's gone. Hulk got that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Carl Weathers and Apollo Creed, he got that $200. So I ain't got it for you, homie. I mean, it looks cool. Sorry. I got mm -hmm. my poster, though. And then so it's, it's, there's a lot of things to look out for when you start the con game, but I believe it can be done because I've done it. Um, I understand that everybody's not me. Everybody's not in the same position that I'm in. Uh, people have nine to five jobs. You may not be able to get to a con, but if that's the case, then you have to start thinking strategically about your schedule and look for events maybe a year ahead of time so you can take time off if that's something you want to do. And if it's not something you're doing every month, then, you know, this month, come next year, I'm going to be at this con. And if it works and you're successful, then I think you need to research finding out how you can do it more. And that's basically what happened with me. We got to find out how to do more of this um, every year so that we're constantly growing. And it also pushes you, at least it pushes me. Mm -hmm. um, you said you have, you have three books out? Well, I have two and I'm working on the third one. I shouldn't, that should be all probably like another two years, maybe a year and a half if I can push it. But yeah, I have two out right now. Yeah. Both, uh, Unholy and Unbroken. Okay. So yeah, so I have physical copies now that I'm looking to sell at tables and cons maybe not so much but i just want to get used to doing tables and you know stuff like that so i'm trying to hurry up and see if i can get at least maybe one done for the holiday rush because some people already pre no their copy so yeah why no cons i i don't i don't know i mean i would like to do baltimore book fest that they have here maybe like the book fest was cons I, i'm not sure i, I just want to see how it is first and then, like you said, I probably have to book it like months in advance, which I don't mind doing, but I just want to see what it would be like first with the local stuff. That's why I was asking, is it worth it to, to do the cons rather than just do local stuff? So You can do both. You yeah, I mean, I would, love, I would love to do both. I mean, I would love to do something I see like your that. I see your cover art uh -huh. and I, it looks good to me. And I think that you would be well received at a con. My other question would be, what's the traffic, the foot traffic going to be like at the Baltimore Book Fest versus the con? Because there was one thing, 
the Baltimore Book Fair was happening that same weekend I did my first Baltimore Comic Con and I was kind of mad that I couldn't go to both. Yeah, but, I remember when it was both at the same time. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, but I did well at Baltimore Comic Con. I'm not sure that I would have done better at the Book Fest. Well, the Book Fest is right there at the harbor and mm. the convention center is not is like that, it's literally down the road. So, okay. I mean, it depends on where you are like if you're right there right at the front of the harbor is more foot traffic right there versus if you're further in the back further is down. it outdoor yeah it's, it's it's outdoor okay okay yeah it's it all depends on the placement so if, like i said if you're right there where um not by light street light street is, is further down but I forgot what it's called. But if you're like right there in the front with all the tourist traffic, you'll do better right there in front of the, the science center. That's where it is. You'll okay. do better right there. And it's the same thing at Baltimore Comic Con, depending on where you are. If Artist Alley, if you're like right there in the right there near the bathrooms, or actually where a lot of foot traffic is because it's the bathroom. Um, and then um, not where the food courts are, but um, I forgot what the other place is. Maybe I think where all the merchandise is. Mm -hmm. A lot of traffic right there. Like yeah. right between, like right at the intersection is a lot of traffic. And right by the door, yeah. the main doors is a lot of foot traffic. So, but but yeah, but uh, like I said, if you can get it right there in the in the front, in like the first, maybe like the first 10 tenths mm -hmm. of the book fest, of Baltimore Book Fest, you can do pretty well right there. It's a lot of traffic right there. Oh. I've done pretty I've been in three different locations in Baltimore mm -hmm. I've been in two different locations in awesome con and this most recent year we were all the way in the back by the Star Wars display on the way to the back to where the um celebrities were uh -huh. so I was facing the wall with the huge 501st Star Wars display where they had people dressed up as stormtroopers, had a big wall making it look like the Star Wars cantina, live little uh, R2-D2 droids that blared music right there. We still killed it at awesome time with all those distractions. Uh -huh. I'm thinking people would seek you out. Okay. Not to be funny, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, I get patronage from everybody but in particular when i see my people when my people see me and i'm like oh is it oh he wrote books it's not oh you ain't got art like we got to come over here and we've done very well without trying to guilt them into coming over mm -hmm. i think folks will seek you out and they would buy your books they would listen to your story and you it would be a worthwhile time i think um andrea rose washington who i met at the first comic con i was at she's a sci-fi and fantasy author as well she's always done well at these cons i think when i met her she had three books now she's working on sequels to those right now you would do yeah, well I, at a con i actually met her yeah i actually met her and bought one, bought one of her books when i was there so yeah you would do well at a con i think um people would definitely support they would come out and support and you you would not you wouldn't be disappointed. I would just say, make sure you have enough inventory, um, especially if you choose at one of the larger events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely have more. Yeah. But I only have twenty of each right now because, like I said, I normally just do digital copies. So yeah, yeah. Now I'm just trying to figure out: do I have too many? Am I not 
not gonna have enough or there's no I'm... no such thing no such thing because they're not perishable items they're not going to spoil if you have any leftover you can take them to the next event i just ordered you can probably see the stacks yeah i see the stacks here. this is book one that's book two i'm waiting on book three to come in and i have young bonnie in the back and then over here are the hard covers of those same books um and i'm worried i don't have enough because ocean city is only one day but I'm going to, I'm, and I'm actually hoping to do more of the graphic novels at Ocean City because Worldcon is more geared toward literary authors. And I'm, I'm worried I'm not going to have enough. This will be the longest event. I've never done like a four, take that back, uh, Balticon. I've also done Balticon. Okay. Um, that was a four day event. Um, so, yeah, you can never have to, unless you're putting yourself out financially by investing in the inventory, there's no such thing as too much. Okay. I wouldn't put you, I wouldn't go out on a limb and buy too much so that you're actually broke and you need themselves, but I would buy enough to cover, to make sure, or if you have a goal in mind, um, that you think is lofty, then buy enough that if you'd sold out of them, that you would get that amount and mm -hmm. you'd be surprised what, what happens. Um, like I said, when I made $700, that first one, I was like, okay, my goal now is to make a thousand. And then how do we put together, how do we string together 12 of these events? If I only do one event a month. If I did 12 and made 12 grand off of just selling my books each year, would that be considered cool? I guess that was my minimum success rate, you know, my, my gauge for success for the year, what I wanted to get to after making 700. And now, and I also started with like, well, you want to make double table. And then it becomes, well, I need to make triple table and quadruple table. Those little games like that to play with yourself, like things to aspire to once you get your feet wet and you know that it's, it's a viable thing. Now, if you get there and you don't do well at all, um, I would say I would think your 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 pitch over and your display, because a lot of times people come over to see your display before you even get a word out. Yeah. Uh, your visuals are what's going to bring people to the table, and then after you get them there, then it's then 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 it's on you. Mm -hmm. But I've had a lot of people just approach like what they saw and then bought off top without me saying too much of anything. And then there are a lot of people that want to hear what it's about. And then once they hear what it's about, then that kind of seals the deal. But yeah, I think you would do very well at, um, at conventions. I think they are very viable for readers. And there's not that many. The other thing is there's not that many of us at cons. Yeah. In comparison to the people who are just comic book creators or just visual artists at a comic because they're they're there to cater to a lot of the fandoms a lot of them are doing fan art of spider-man and batman and you know who else you know star wars and all that mm -hmm. and they're looking for that so when you see authors there are some there but they, we're not the majority yeah yeah I t yeah i totally agree and thank you for your advice i i'm definitely just getting into it any advice I, anyone's willing to give me i'm more than willing to take it all right, well, again, I want to thank the author of the sci-fi series, Ancient Illumination, and the newly released fantasy series, Yamani Chronicles, Rod Van Blake. I highly recommend our listeners to check out Rod's website, ancientillumination.net. All of Rod's socials will also be listed in this episode's details. Again, I am K.S. Garner, and you've been listening to the Solo Nerdbird Podcast. Thank you.